You're listening to Randstad Sourcerite's Talent Navigator podcast. Join us to hear about the latest research, talent trends and success stories from human capital leaders who are driving their organisations forward with smart workforce planning strategies. I'm Audra Jenkins, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of Ronset North America. Uh, today we've got two phenomenal speakers I'm so excited to have here. First is the amazing Alita Howell with Cisco. She's the Global Diversity and Inclusion Strategy Lead. She's responsible for aligning corporate and functional ED9 strategies, creating internal programs and initiatives that drive diverse and inclusive hiring. Prior to her current role, she also led the Cisco Inclusive Recruiting Strategy for the University of Recruiting and served as the program manager for Cisco's Office of Inclusion and Collaboration, where she created the new processes to drive diversity metrics, reviews, and discussions with senior leaders. She's a strong advocate and champion of EDNI and has a, has a wonderful career that spans across multiple industries. A fun fact about Alita is that she's a former Spelling Bee champion, loves to write, and spend time at the beach in her spare time. Welcome, Alita. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Alita. Next, we have the absolutely amazing Stanley Blackwell with Gilead Sciences. He's the executive director, director, head of U.S. talent acquisition, and he's also responsible for creating the vision strategy roadmap for talent acquisition across the U.S. TA enterprise-wide sourcing, early talent, university relations, and diversity sourcing recruitment. With more than 25 years of experience, Stan excels at building and leading high-performing talent acquisition teams with a successful pursuit of diversifying global organizations. In 2021, Stan helped to spearhead the commitment that Gilead made to the 110 initiative, which is backed internally by the company's advancing black leadership strategy. A fun fact about Stan is he was offered a full scholarship to play college baseball and turned it down. Welcome, Stan. Thank you, Audra. Good to be with you. Excellent. So let's talk about some of the topics. You know, we've got several topics to jump in here today. I won't read all of these. We're just going to just go jump straight into the first one. Um, the first topic is on building equity, diversity, inclusion in your talent strategy. So, Alita, let's start with you. When we look at the impact over the last 18 months, you know, all of us as EDNR practitioners, we've definitely had to, to pivot our EDNR goals during this pandemic. How has your um, EDNI strategy was built into your talent strategy overall, especially during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, I like to think of our um, the, the talent strategy component of EDNI at Cisco as, as really an evolution. It's a bit of a continuum. So I think if I look back, um, I've been in this space at Cisco for the past seven or eight years. And so if I look at where we started, it was really a focus on diversity, right? Diversity reporting data to the EOC and that kind of thing. And then we evolved to into the space of um, diversity and inclusion. And it sort of focused on creating some best practices that we could then um, expand. And now, of course, we are focused on inclusion and collaboration. And I really think about as the talent market shifts, I feel like we're just at another place in that continuum. Um, foundational to our um, our talent strategy has really been, and I know we're going to probably talk about this a little bit more, but really has been focused on data. Um, and that's a tougher, that's, you know, taking data, sharing that with leaders, showing them what their organizations look like from a diversity perspective, um, showing them what it looks like in terms of representation, but also looking at attrition data. And that sort of sometimes aligns with inclusion, right? People leave jobs oftentimes because they don't feel that it's an inclusive culture, inclusive environment. Um, and so, Using that data to to um, inform our strategies, looking at where gaps are, looking at what we think we can achieve. Right, we can't achieve everything in one year. Um, 
So um, how do we align strategies and create programs to attract more female talent or more um, ethically diverse talent? Um, and then, of course, as we think about the past 18 months with the uh, great resignation, that's really forced us. I feel like at Cisco, it, you know, we, we partnered, you mentioned 110, the 110 Coalition, um, uh, and some other programs that focus on skills-based hiring. And I think, you know, Cisco and other companies, um, I, I think it's an opportunity for us to really rethink about how we're hiring um, and really lean into that space. Um, so. Um, I think I think it's to me it's just the next step on the continuum as we think about what's probably taking place in the past 18 months. Absolutely, Alita. It's definitely not a destination; it's a journey, and uh, okay. very well, strong points there. Stan, just to piggyback on that, Alita raised a great point about the Great Resignation, and also, in, you know, in on top of that, it's a great gender recession. We've seen people to really reevaluate what's important in their lives right now and their careers and. They're opting for different choices. How has your strategy been impacted or changed as a result of talent scarcity challenges brought on by the pandemic as well as the great resignation? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I think, you know, even before the pandemic in organizations like Gilead that hire a specialized workforce, it's tough all the time when you think of those, you know, competitive roles, you think of those highly specialized backgrounds that you need and, and when you need them. Uh, and then you think about the diversity um, that exists or does not exist in those various areas. So from a TA perspective, what is the burden on that proactive sourcing engine that needs to always be going in order to meet the need of the organization's goals related to diversity and inclusion? And you know, for us, I think uh, one of the things that has really helped you know, is the Blueprint for Change at uh, Gilead today, which is a program that really creates the opportunity when you think of the investments that each of our organizations make, for example, with diversity career events that happen a lot of times in Q3 and Q4 of the year, uh, you find that most of that headcount is gone. And so how and why are you showing up, uh, you know, turns into branding your organization versus really hiring talent. And through our program, it just provides headcount. Um, you know, when we need it to hire top talent, uh, wherever it sits in the organization or in, in the US for that matter, we've got multiple locations, multiple sites, and we do leave that hiring decision, obviously with the managers in terms of where that talent will reside, but that flexibility is something that we continue to monitor uh, and make available because um, as you all know, when you look at the diversity data numbers that have come out this month, a lot of companies' diversity representation numbers would fail had it not been for flexible locations. And so we hope that will continue uh, to play a part, you know, in how we think about our teams and the representation that we all seek. Excellent point, Stan. I, I couldn't agree more on that. Um, that's a great segue to our next uh, set of questions around workforce planning in complex changing environments. I, I really think that, you know, Alita, you know, looking you know, at those questions, I feel as though really have got to get back to looking at how we leverage that data and how does that play it with the emerging talent pools? I mean, you, you did share, you talked about partnering closely um, and looking at emerging and raw talent, but what other ways are you looking at um, or how are you using data, data to position that talents for hiring managers? Yeah, um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, in, in terms of the emerging talent, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of data out there in terms of, you know, unemployment rates, in terms of talent that's available. 
Um, and again, if you look at um, the number of folks that have left the workforce, again, with the great resignation, I think it's the numbers around 4 million or so. Um, and so looking at that data, looking at, because I, I think if you think about the, especially in the, let's just take the university space, um, a lot of students have opted not to enter, last in the past year in particular, have opted not to enter uh, traditional four-year universities. Um, and so we may not see that impact today, but I think we will see that impact in probably a couple years from now. So that workforce is starting to tighten. Um, and I think that leads to um, leads to programs like, you know, again, when you look at the, the, the available talent market, it may not be the traditional talent that we have historically hired in terms of, for us, talent with a four-year degree. And, and so I think it forces us to rethink um, what qualified talent looks like. Uh, what do what you what do you really need to be, uh, for a candidate for an employee employee to be successful in a particular role? Um, and so we've gone through that process in the past um, over the past six months. I mean, in a huge way because you know, I mentioned the One Ten uh, Coalition, uh, which is an an initiative uh, that is focused on upskilling and reskilling a million African Americans over the without the, uh, four year degrees in the in the next ten years. So Cisco and Gilead both are founding members of that. Um, and so that's a huge talent pool that's out there, that it's available. But um, the reality is that if we're going to um, think about skills-based hiring and think about talent pools that are available that we can tap into, we also have to rethink about how we hire and how we, how we identify what we call qualified talent. Uh, we need to think about you know, interviewing and adding talent for cultural ad versus cultural fit um, and you know, encouraging hiring managers to not think about the the sort of laundry list of 15 skills that I'd love to have, but what are the core qualifications that you really need for somebody to be successful? And then I also think it takes a larger commitment for hiring managers um, to be willing to pour a bit more into de developing their talent. So it's not just, I come to the table with, you know, ready-made to walk in the door and, and be able to do 150% of the job. It's it, To me, it's, it, it forces um, hiring managers to, to almost um, think about uh, developing strong, stronger partnerships with their employees and thinking about how you how you can develop talent uh, versus um, sort of the traditional, you know, talent walking in the door being necessarily job ready. That's an excellent point, Talita. Stan, along those lines, you know, I keep thinking with COVID-19, we also saw a pandemic within a pandemic with a shift in focus on social justice following the 2020 death of George Floyd. You know, with all of our companies being uh, members of 110, the 110 Coalition, what are some other ways that we can use uh, the data about these type of initiatives and the current climate um, to make those decisions, to make those commitment levels? I mean, there surely had to be, I mean, obviously Cisco and Gilead both were, you know, founding members and, you know, made very bold, you know, decisions early on. Uh, Ron said we joined uh, in 2021. Um, what are the, some of those metrics that you're using to help make those decisions, to help to guide the, your leaders into making those commitment levels and to remove those barriers to that uh, skills first hiring, emerging talent? Sure, sure, Audra. I think there are two, two ways that I would approach kind of that question. I think, you know, at a high level, I would just remind us, you know, there was a great diversity study in 2016 that showed diverse teams outperformed homogeneous teams by 25%. The diverse teams came to the table more prepared to deal with uh, disagreements that they would expect to get. But through that wrestling, ideas, you know, were comprehensive 
and creative versus those homogeneous teams that showed more groupthink, spending less time in ideation and came up with the likely obvious solutions to a problem. And so when you think of, you know, what the impact can be that diverse teams can have on an organization, I think that's the first data point would be kind of that, you know, that corporate goal. And I think anyone, you know, who is, whether you're a P&L owner or whether you're a contributor to a P&L, cost savings or value capture, wherever you are on that continuum, there, there's a place for that example in terms of how we can, you know, show up from a diverse and rep well-represented workforce. But from a hiring manager perspective on the 110 topic, I think we just have to really help them understand what is not changing when you're removing a degree requirement. Um, what's not changing is that we are hiring the best candidate for the position. That's not changing. And I think in any change initiative, that's something we forget to remind the stakeholders of what is not changing. But what is changing is the net that we're casting, broader, wider, deeper, to get talent that we could need now in the future that could help shape innovation uh, for the organization. And we may not start off by uh, removing a degree requirement from every single role, but we can certainly look at you know, where we can start uh, to have that conversation and then build on it based on the needs of the organization, uh, based on uh, data you know, that we bring to the table for hiring managers, because a lot of times, you know, if our competitors are doing something, they wanna know about it. So I think the 110 initiative really allows us to fiercely compete uh, for talent. And if one organization is doing something and another organization is not doing it, uh, then who's getting the net benefit and the competitive advantage, you know, through holistically looking at the talent pool that can be meaningful to the success of an organization. And can I add something to that, Audra? Yeah, I think absolutely. From, from a social justice perspective in particular, <clears throat> it really, you know, one can, when we first approached uh, and started building on our framework, and then I, I went to start talking and socializing the initiative, uh, with our leaders, um, one of the things that came out of those conversations was how 110 and other initiatives like it can be a part of the strategy. So it's not just we're going to hire individuals in a certain talent pool. It's, it's, a, it's a part of, diver, of our diversity strategy. Um, and, and to Stan's point, you know, oftentimes or, or there are times when uh, in, within the context of a diversity conversation, um, it leads some to think that we are sacrificing quality, right? We're not, it doesn't mean sacrificing quality. It means that we're we're looking into a, tapping into a different talent pool. And I feel like if, if those of us in this business don't get out there now, we're gonna get left behind because there are companies that are gonna compete. This is, this is the way that we're gonna have to compete for talent as we move forward again within a shrinking talent market. And then the last point I'll add is I was reading an article the other day from Harvard Business Review, and it talked about one of the when you think about skills requiring, one of the best indicators of, of success is grit, tenacity, the willingness to get in there and learn and make it happen. And so I think when you think about skills-based hiring, one of the things that I've learned with the uh, talent, we're onboarding um, 30 new hires uh, through 110, actually next Tuesday. And one of the common threads that I would say I've seen in the folks that I've interviewed and the folks that I've, um, that I've um, interacted with is grit. They have grit, they have tenacity because it's an opportunity um, that, that maybe some folks would have otherwise not have had. And now they really appreciate that opportunity, maybe more so than some of us who might take that out, those opportunities for granted. So I think it's something that companies really need to lean into from a talent market perspective, otherwise we're gonna get left behind. 
that's powerful, Alita. I love that the grit and tenacity to get it done because you know when you have no other choice, you just have to be successful. And I think that people look at that emerging talent is like this is their choice, and they also will be loyal because you invested in them. I really think that's something people overlook is it's a great retention tool because they've gotten they now have a career with a company they would not have otherwise been able to get into. You know, everybody would love to work at Cisco and Gilead. You know. Um, Excellent point. Let's move on, guys, as we go to the next topic. I know we want to talk about shifting. We talked a lot about shifting and defining talent. Alita, you mentioned it. Stan, you did as well. But the other piece of it is that I think it's that change management piece. So let's talk about it. Um, Alita, one of the bottlenecks is we hear is, you know, we can't meet our diversity talent goals. It's just there. We don't know there. We don't know where to find the talent. How is Cisco shifting that way? Like, how were they? I know you talked about the 110 initiative and 30 people you're onboarding, but what did it take to shift that, that thought process and the hiring managers to give this a try? Yeah, um, I, I think it goes back to sort of that evolution and that continuum that I talked about. And I think it starts, to me, it starts at the top. It starts with leader and executive commitment uh, and, and reiterating and reinforcing here's what we're going to do so our mission is to create an inclusive future for all um and then that those messages can't just stop at the top they need to be pressed pushed down and you know through an open organization and that does take time um in terms of you know prior to prior to one can you know we had started to um lean in more in terms of recruiting at historically black colleges and universities right so a few years ago we probably had a, had a presence at, I don't know, three or four, and now that's expanded to twice that, about eight or nine schools, plus we do digital sourcing. So we found opportunities to do digital sourcing at historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic serving institutions. We've um, strengthened our investment in uh, different recruiting platforms that focus on diverse talent, conferences. Um, so we've employed a number of different elements there and just Continue to keep at the top of mind in our conversations. When we have our quarterly business reviews with leaders um, at the table talking to leaders about their organizations, um, they don't like to see those gaps in representation and, and maybe what their talent pools should look like. So then those leaders get engaged. I think to me that is the number one driver. Yeah. You know, it's great to have them, you know, they they eventually have to be, they're the boots on the ground that have to execute, but but the uh the leaders um, need to continue to reinforce it. Um and, and honestly, I feel because we did a lot of that work prior to 110, when when the 110 opportunity became available and I started doing the roadshows, people just got it. I honestly, it was it was so much easier to have the conversation around 110 and how that could be included as a part of the of different leaders diversity strategy. It was much easier than I thought. In fact, if I look at our 110 demand for uh, this this fiscal year, the vast majority of that is in engineering. If you can believe that in engineering, which is amazing to me, and that's just because uh, the leaders the, the leaders understand what it is we're trying to do, what understand that that long term mission. Excellent, um, Stan. Just to piggyback on what Alita just said, you know, with Gilead being in a biopharma, was it more challenging to shift a mindset to look at how we redefine talent at, at Gilead? Yeah, you, you know, I, I think in some areas, yes, because, you know, this is still a highly specialized uh, sector, you know, within the market. Uh, and when you think of folks that have been at an organization for 15 and 20 years plus, there's a mindset that is there. And so when you think about that, I mean, you really have to bring 
everything to the table in terms of value proposition, uh, you know, the, the market data, um, you know, and really helping a leader understand, you know, how he or she will achieve their objectives, you know, in the current state versus the future state. And I do think it will be an evolution dependent upon the function, the leader. It's an individual conversation. Uh, and it's a personal conversation as well, because change is personal. And this is really what we're, you know, engaging from a TA perspective. We are in the throes of change management for the organization. We're leading it, we're driving it, um, sometimes with help, sometimes without help. Um, and it all rests on our shoulders sometimes in terms of, you know, how it lands and the outcomes that uh, are attributed through that. So I do think, you know, we just need to keep on, you know, showing our leaders the ways at which they can achieve the goal. And again, back to what I said previously, emphasizing what's not changing. What's not changing is that we are hiring the best candidate for the position. We wouldn't do that um, any other way and still be a market leader. Um, but it is, you know, how many folks have we not uh, considered that could have contributed uh, to the success of the organization. And even from a productivity perspective, we know the cost of a bad hire, uh, how much that costs um, and how much and how long it takes for someone to make the turn in their role when you have to refill that position. And I think that's where you really can have those strategic conversations about, do you need 100% of the job description or can you live with 70 and build on the 30? And that 30% that you're building on could provide the runway that an organization needs to engage the talent, develop the talent, and hopefully get a longer term investment uh, in the end. It's almost like Batman and Robin, right? You, do you need <laughs> Batman or can Robin do the job? I mean, you can't, you know, do you really need that gold medalist? Maybe a silver medalist might be sufficient for the role. Um, and people kind of overlook the silver medalist because they might come in and crush it. So totally, exactly. Audrey. And, and what do you need with 20 Batmans, right? I mean, how are you exactly. going to keep them here? <laughs> That's exactly. exactly. Yeah, I was going to add one thing too. You know, I, I think of it as a almost like a house, right? I, I think the foundational elements are key. And I think if a company can set strong foundational elements, then when you look down the road five years, leaders, you get, you put leaders in a position where they actually want, they seek your consult. And then it's like, what can we do next? Oh, that worked. What can we do next? Oh, that worked. What, what else can we do? And, you, and so now you're, you're in this, you're, you know, I'm, I'm using some probably bad metaphors, but you're, you feel like you're in this bus together and everybody's moving in the same direction. You keep picking up people as you go along. Um, but I, I think the foundation is key. Absolutely. And it's always evolving. So thank yeah. you for that. That's sure. a great segue to the next uh, questions around um, culture and how we can um, ensure that we are building a culture that's inclusive, you know, for people and that they will stay there. So as we shift to the next questions around inclusive path, uh, I want to say, starting with the stand, let's start with you. You know, one of the biggest myths of diverse recruiting is that you can hire that targeted demographic and leave them at the door when they join. But we all know, especially EDI practitioners and specialists, that you know diverse talent equally want and desire a development, growth, and a career path. So how are you developing diverse talent during the onboarding process and beyond at Gilead? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, for us today, uh, we do have a strong partnership with our talent management team. And so I mentioned a project uh, uh, it's a blueprint for change, but then we've been talking about 110 
And then we have advancing black leadership, which is kind of the all encompassing strategy that our organization has for our diverse talent uh, strategy. And, you know, what I would say is that at every, you know, area on that map and journey, there is a talent management connection. Um, we're building it, you know, while we're going, but that doesn't mean that we need to just let it kind of sit while we recruit and let folks land and roll. But how do you insulate that talent and how do you support that talent in the interim? And that's what we're doing uh, now. Thankfully, we've got a fully built talent management team. We've gone through some change in the organization, like any organization that is building, rebuilding. But certainly we are partners, you know, in how we kind of weave that uh, connectivity between talent acquisition and talent management. And then I would also say that the evolving role of an ERG partner is also critical in how we position them to be successful. A lot of time ERGs want to know what can we do to support uh, hiring initiatives and recruitment initiatives. And so we've got a great plan for them as they can be talent ambassadors for those folks that are on the bench. How do we create routines and rhythms of conversation that happen from the time we get to know them from the time that we hire them? Sometimes that might be 30 days, it could be 60 days, it could go beyond, but they have a contact before they are a hire at Gilead. So we're thinking differently about how do we evolve and engage the partnership with our ERGs because they are, you know, the feet on the street as well. And they can bring a lot of practicality uh, to how individuals are thinking about where they go next. And if they could help us with that, TA will take whatever help we could get. Excellent. Thank you for that, Stan. Alita, you know, at Cisco, what similar programs do you have that's ensuring those inclusion checkpoints for diverse talent once they're hired? So they feel like they're moving along in the in the throes and growing within Cisco. Yeah, I, I would agree with Stan. Our, we call them EROs, the employee resource organizations, but I think they are key uh, in in helping to um, you know onboard um, to to engage uh, potential candidates when they run through the process. Hopefully, if even to help us close um, our um, EROs in particular, um, our connected by professionals organization, our connection organization actually have their own sort of professional development um, initiatives, speaker series, um, there's mentoring, there's reverse mentoring. So there's a lot of different programs um, that we put in place to, to support um, from, a, from an ERO perspective. We've also, um, I wanna say maybe a year, year and a half ago, a really formalized sponsorship program, sponsorship. So getting execs engaged um, to sponsor diverse talent, female talent, uh, because we know the stats there as well. We talked about data early. We know the stats there in terms of the unlikelihood that people of color or women have a sponsorship. And we know that when they do have those sponsors, uh, they tend to progress uh, faster and, and further in organizations. So uh, we also have an initiative that's um, called Proximity. So it's, it's very similar, but but it's focused on leaders getting more proximate to their employees and to, to, their, to their bench. Um, and so, because again, um, in order to uh, in order to have an employee advance, you know, leaders need to know who you are. Um, so we have a number of initiatives there, and then we we also do um, uh, have a lot of uh, uh, several programs that we are nomination programs. Some some are focused on female talent, some are focused on um, African American talent, like the Executive Leadership Council. We send a lot, you know, folks there every year. So there's a number of other initiatives there that we uh, look to get people involved in. 
uh, from a development perspective. So our, our sort of three pillars, if you think about the, the continuum or the, the spectrum in, in terms of talent is um, higher, develop, engage. Uh, and oftentimes we focus on the higher and not the engage and develop. So, you know, we, they, we bring people in the front door and then they leave out the back door. So we really are trying to focus more on that, on that retention um, component as well. Yeah, absolutely. Stan, do you want to add to that? Well, you know, I, I certainly agree. I, I just think that th this is something that will continue to evolve and, and we have to evolve with it and not be so regimented, you know, in a uh, just action plan that may or may not be working uh, and be willing to tweak it when we need to. Excellent. I know as we progress, so you guys already talked about your, you know, employee resource organizations, employee resource groups, but one area as we go to the next um, topic is really trying to make people feel like they're respected, valued, and supported in the organization. And how can you um, leverage those employer resource organizations or re employer resource groups to help build that sense of belonging? Um, not only just development piece, but what are we doing to communicate that inclusivity in that process? Lydia, you wanna start there? Sure, um, yeah. I. I think for us, I think most of the folks, a lot of the folks that are really active in our EROs take it upon themselves, the employees. Those employees are already in the organization, um, trying to trying to take an active role in encouragement and uh, encouraging others to network, right? Um, and some of those, some of those um, necessities that, that oftentimes we may forget because at the end of the day, you know, our, you know, definitely leadership plays a role in career development, but the employee plays a bigger role. And so um, EROs, I think, or employee resource organizations, I think play a key role in, like I said, we have, you know, ours are very active in different professional development initiatives, but then also encouraging other folks to network, to you need to meet this person, uh, you have a career plan, um, do you have brand statements and some of those different elements that we oftentimes don't think about? You know, if you happen to, um, if, if, a, if a senior leader happens to, um, you know, you happen to run into a senior leader or they happen to ask you, you know, for coffee, do you know what your, what's your brand, what, what's your elevator pitch? And really just sort of thinking ahead of some of those things. So I think in addition to the company and some of the different initiatives, like talking about proximity and sponsorships and some of the things that we're asking leaders to do, I think there's also a, a strong, uh, need on the on the side of the employee to do their part as well in terms of investing in themselves. And I think if both of those components um, are built um, successfully, you know, you meet each other in the middle. And that, and I think that to me is the is the formula uh, for for success. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Alita. Mm -hmm. So, Stan, you know, pivoting on that, let's talk about initiatives and associations outside of the ERGs, external organizations. You know, what are some of the ones that Gilead's engaged in that is helping to impact your culture? Yeah, so from a professional organizational uh, kind of focus, uh, I mentioned at the top of the call uh, that I am currently in D.C. at the National Sales Network conference. And so this is a conference that we are partnering with for our commercial organization. And there are others by function that we, you know, build relationships with. And uh, for us, um, it really is about building kind of that, that relationship. I think a lot of companies don't realize that brand equity is a big part of why someone joined your organization, whether you're talking about the diverse or the majority. 
it still has to do with your brand equity. Um, and so we really want, you know, to, through those relationships, kind of show the commitment of our organization. Uh, but then also at the same time, understand the complex environment that we're in today. We all know, you, you know, it's just a, a, a tough time for organizations. You're dealing with can cancel culture, uh, various advocates, social media channels, socially conscious customers. Uh, you, we literally cannot afford to not do right by everyone that we are trying to uh, look after when you think of the talent continuum. And so that's just, you know, something that we will continue to have to uh, carefully manage, uh, because if we truly believe that the number one asset of any company is an individual, uh, then inclusion and diversity equity has to be adopted as a executive uh, and strategic pillar for the organization. I mean, you just have to, you have to believe that. Uh, otherwise, this is just, you know, activities that may or may not happen. Absolutely. Um, Alita, did you want to piggyback on that? No, I completely agree with what Stan said. It, it, it is about, you know, establishing a, a strong employer brand and what that brand stands for. Because, again, this talent market probably won't get any less competitive <laughs> as we move forward. Um, and, it, you know, as it continues to constrict and as we continue to hopefully try to stay out in front of it and rethink about talent. Um, I agree. I, I think that um, I think that. Uh, um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I can't add anything else. <laughs> I can't add anything else to what's okay. <laughs> <laughs> No worries there. You know, it's interesting. You both talked about the culture. Um, there was a study that came out with SHRM a few years ago, and obviously before the pandemic, before uh, social justice uh, became a major, you know, uh, focus point. And they said that the reason why a lot of um, EDNI strategies haven't progressed is because 33% of the companies felt like they'd done enough. That they've done enough and it's it's indifference that really has been you know killing you know edni for so many years and then i i always tell people there is no this is tough work people don't understand that edni you just can't wake up and just jump into the role uh it, it takes a lot of commitment and a lot of uh passion for it because it is it is working and moving forward and shifting cultures and organizations and belief systems that may have been there for many 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 years so excellent conversation Alita, Stan, I could talk to you all day long, but I also need know that I need to make sure we leave room for questions from our audience that have taken out time out to listen to us here today. So I believe we're going to transition now to the Q&A session. Let's see what we got going on for questions. Um, here's a great question about, and I'll just, whichever one wants to take this, but how have you adjusted your employee referral practices to encourage referrals of more diverse talent? Does either one of you want to answer that? You know, I'm, I'm happy to add um, that we have upped hours. Um, it was, uh, you know, $1,500 and now it's 2,500 and now we are working on activating that and communicating uh, the importance of this. Um, program and so that's kind of in in play now but that's something that we really want to tap into and strengthen uh because we know that that is going to be uh and it always has been when you think of the data and you think of you know the source of hire uh, whether you, they're doing whether employees are doing it or not that tends to be a high source of higher number that we see so how do we better incentivize that and really aim it in the uh, target areas that we need is something we'll do uh moving forward 
Excellent. I think that's a great, that's a great uh, point there, Stan. And the other piece of it is too, you know, some of these employer referral programs, someone created those 20 years ago and no one's looked at them since. So I think it's also being brought up to current market of what it would cost. I mean, if you think about the referral cost versus the cost of how long that job is empty, you know, it is exponentially better to do the referral than to have that empty seat. Uh, for the hiring manager in that role and, and maybe not being able to serve your customers. So, so excellent point there. The next question I have is, um, oh, someone asked the question, Stan, you had talked about the cost of a bad hire. They're saying, what is the cost of a bad hire to replace a bad hire? What are some things that go into that cost? Right. So I, I think that that number dependent upon your uh, sector will vary if, if you're highly, if you're highly specialized sector that has, uh, you know, hours and hours of training, um, you know, then that number will be higher. But I think the average cost to train a new employee, the range is about 1,044 to 1,500. That doesn't include the recruiting efforts nor the ramp up to contribution. But if you multiply that number by each regrettable loss that you'll experience, um, then you'll start to see you know, what that impact of the bottom line is. And those are small numbers, but I think those are average because not all companies require highly specialized um, degrees or and or cert certificates or what have you. But I think that number that I gave is probably more representative of the broader, broader uh, sectors. Excellent, thank you for that, Stan. Alita, one question came in about, I know you have employer resource organizations, but how do you start that in a smaller company? You know, Cisco is massive, global, um, but you know, you think about the days of you know a smaller organization or a little subset, a subsection of Cisco. How do you get an ERO started? You know, I would say, I mean, first it takes interest and desire, and then you know, finding an, an executive sponsor. So finding some leaders who have a passion to, toward diversity, um, and I think uh, if someone was is in a smaller organization, they probably know who those folks are. Uh, and then having some conversations with a couple of, of potential uh, sponsors and, you know, determining um, or, or confirming that you want to move forward with it and then, you know, developing a charter. And there's, I think there's a, there's, there's several, uh, I think resources either online. There's, I think there's even books written about how um, to start those, but, you know, developing the charter and then determining how you're going to get members and that kind of thing. But I think the, the biggest, uh, the first step to me is, is passion, desire, and then having somebody executive sponsor. Excellent. Thank you for that, Alita. We've got another great question here. Um, so, Stan, someone's asking about um, how do you use your take your HRTA data to look for gaps in your DEI strategy when you're looking at recruiting? So, bringing in that diverse talent, how is data highlighting those gaps for you? Like, how are you able to quickly find the gaps? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's one that is never ending in terms of how we review kind of that postmortem uh, look, you know, for each of the requisitions that we have. But even um, on the front of that, when you think of the hires or the strategy that you need going into next year, for example, we're already planning for next year. So we're already thinking about what we need uh, from a functional perspective. And then we're aligning those TA strategies uh, you know, to, to kind of meet them. And we already have the representation data in terms of who we have today uh, and how far off or not we are for meeting our objectives that we have. 
So I do think it's just having those common uh, definitions around what it is we're trying to solve. Sometimes our definition may not be as common as we think it is. And I think that's where we've got to get real uh, diligent on the data and using it to do what it is that we need to do with it versus having a lot of broader uh, conversations that don't lead to, to hiring. So it's really isolating you know, what it is we're trying to solve. If it's representation, uh, if it's a level, uh, you know, if it's, if it's a, if it's the hiring process itself that calls fallout, um, looking at, you know, where folks fall out of the funnel, for example. So I think it's all inclusive, but that is how we're looking at data to ensure that we have the right practices, the right process, the right strategy. Uh, and if we're not getting the outcome, then we do that postmortem to really understand, you know, what is it that's preventing us, you know, from attracting that talent. That's great. Thank you for that, Stan. Um, Alita, one of the things I was going to, I think that's important is looking at pre and post hiring uh, metrics on EDI. What are you, are you surveying some of the diverse talent once they come to Cisco? Like, how are we measuring uh, their impact or their experience once they've been hired on? Yeah, um, I think most of any, any work that we're doing in terms of surveying is probably probably being done through our employee resource organizations, or it's not, I wouldn't say it's as formalized. So um, prior to, uh, prior to, I think we, we announced our social justice actions, I want to say last May, and then prior to that, our CEO um, went through a process where he actually pulled in groups of different folks. So there were African-American groups and, or Hispanic Latino groups and talked about the experience at Cisco and, and just, you know, where, where, where we're doing well, where we're not doing well. Um, and then that 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 um, feedback was actually used to inform some of our actions around social justice and some of the things that we're driving now. Uh, but I think in terms of being formal and just going to particular groups, um, there's probably, I don't, I can't think of anything that we're doing ongoing. Uh, outside of say exit interviews and things like that when people leave, which is probably not exactly the time you want to do it. But, but I think a lot of the work that we're doing around surveying um, in terms of experience is probably more around the employee resource organizations that would be sponsored by those organizations. Thank you for that, Alita. Stan, did you want to add to that? Surveying the doors talent? I would just say ours is evolving in, in that space. I think there's a obvious interest in collecting that information and it's just how, and I think depending upon the group, um, it, it happens, it may happen a different way, but the data is being collected and uh, actioned on. Thank you for that. So Alita and Stan, both of you had great EDNI programs, initiatives, great talent acquisition, talent acquisition uh, processes in place. Do you extend any of the things that you're doing from diverse talent to your contingent labor or subcontractors? Some of the uh, programs that you're working that you have in your organization. So, our employee resource organizations, any of the um, any of the efforts that are offered there are definitely available. Um, some of the more formal programs, um, like the sponsorships or some of the um, attending some of those conference, I talked about executive leadership council and things like that. Uh, those would then have to be facilitated by the um, the contractor uh, employer, if you will. Um, so things that are done internally, um, again, mainly with the ER, uh, EROs, are definitely the employment group. Thank you for that, Alita. Stan, what about you? I know one, uh, one of the things that work with Gilead that in the TA, um, you know, 
we support, you know, Gilead from a TA perspective in that there's been a lot of great trainings that you've uh, extended to our organization. Uh, what about other contractors within within Gilead? Yeah, I would say it, it's similar. I think obviously there's that compliance, you know, angle that we have to maintain, but where we can, we certainly do. And we believe that that fosters, you know, that partnership that we need uh, to make folks feel that they're part of the team. And that's something that we continue to assess. And we appreciate, you know, the feedback we get from our partnership with Randstad because that's something that will certainly help us, you know, be better uh, together. So we, we're happy about that. Well, Alina and Stan, as always, you guys are such a wealth of knowledge and powerhouses in the EDI space. It's been such a treat to be with you here today. So we certainly appreciate everyone's uh, time today. Thank you again, Alina and Stan, and thank you for Cisco and Gilead for the great work you're doing in the EDI space. And I think that wraps us up today. Thank you for listening to Randstad SourceRights Talent Navigator podcast. Learn more about the trends you've heard about today at randstadsourcewrite.com.